Hey everyone, this is Caleb here from In the Mood for Real History. Now before you get started with this episode, if you haven't heard, I want to tell you about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain it to you. First off, being on a teacher's salary, I love that it is free. There's also creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. So make sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Hello and streaming to you live from one of the few places in Alabama with any common sense. This is In the Mood to Learn Real History, where I'm on a mission to make history real again. With today's society filled with fake news and all-out lies in history textbooks, every week this podcast will take an episode-by-episode look into the obscure and the major events of history, but it's going to be from a people's perspective. So instead of hearing the same old stories in your history books that you most likely slept through, by the way, We will look at these events from a perspective of everyday people and how they, not glorified leaders, truly shaped our history. I'm your host, Caleb Mood. So I want to start out by saying I am so incredibly thankful for everybody's support. If you enjoy this episode and want to let me know how I'm doing, feel free to click that like button below. And also you can click that fancy red button below as well that helps you subscribe to my channel. I always appreciate any comments or feedback. So I'm also now on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and probably coming soon to a coffee shop near you. So welcome to our fourth and final episode of our series on American Democratic Socialism. So last episode, we discussed how a federal job guarantee, baby bonds, and reparations make up the three-legged stool for justice. So if you didn't get to check that out yet, make sure to go check out that and all previous episodes on my series on American Democratic Socialism. So getting back to it, these three policies together would establish a firm foundation for racial economic justice across the board in the U.S. So this week, we're going to conclude our series by looking at how healthcare, education, and sports would look under a system of American Democratic Socialism. So... You don't have to adjust your speakers or anything like that. You did hear me right. I did say sports. So hopefully that helped pique your interest. And you are not too drunk right now. But speaking of drinking, my beer of the week this week is a Trim Tab Paradise Now. It's such a perfect summer beer. And no, I'm not a paid spokesperson, but Trim Tab hit me up and I totally would take those uh, advertising dollars. So anyway, let's get going. So now this is the moment that I know you all have been waiting for. We're going to discuss how American democratic socialism can reclaim the lost competition in sports. So to start out, I want to preface this by saying that I truly love sports. On one end, I grew up an Alabama fan, so I've seen the highs of the last decade of dominating football with Nick Shaven. 
but I've also witnessed the lows of the early 2000s during the Mike DeBose and Mike Shula years. I even got to witness Alabama winning a national title my freshman year of college when we utterly shellacked Notre Dame. So I decided my junior year of college to transfer to the University of South Florida. Go Bulls! So once I arrived there, I witnessed a stark change in the football culture. Compared to Alabama, USF football was in its infancy. But we did manage to double our wins each year from two my very first year to 11 by the time that I graduated in 2016. You know, we really cherished each and every one of those wins. Besides that, I absolutely love watching hockey as well. I'm a huge Tampa Bay Lightning fan. I'm also a fan of the Tampa Bay Bucks and Orlando Magic. And you know, for the last two of those that I mentioned, the Bucks and the Magic, I'm used to the mediocrity and disappointment after week one of each new season. But as much as I love sports... I never really gave much thought into the politics of sports. That dramatically changed for me when Colin Kaepernick decided to start kneeling during the national anthem. So he made this this decision because he believed that it was his opportunity to raise awareness for the ongoing police brutality that was occurring across the United States to people of color. Kaepernick has said on numerous occasions that the sole purpose of kneeling during the national anthem is not to disrespect military personnel at all, but rather that his goal is to use his social platform to bring topics regarding politi- or police brutality and oppression of people of color to light. So Kaepernick stated, quote, I am not going to get up to show pride in a country that oppresses black people and people of color. So in the aftermath, I hear I heard announcers speak about Kaepernick being, quote, the tradition of activists like Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, Jim Brown, and John Carlos. At the time, though, I was only 22, so I had no idea that such a tradition existed, so I wanted to learn more about the past. This often invisible history of struggle and resistance in the celebrity-obsessed world of sports should compel us in the, pre- in the present to both critique sports an attempt to envision the kind of sports world we want to see in the future. So imagine what a world of sports would look like in a country that's not scarred by war, poverty, and the obsession with the almighty dollar. I've wondered what sports would look like if the athletic industrial complex wasn't such a cutthroat business, and if sports weren't so divided between those who play and those who watch. Sports are like fire. And fire can be used to burn down your house or cook a meal. We are in a moment when the house is burning both in the sports world and in the real world. But imagine if we could harness that fire for a greater good. I believe that sports can be different, better, democratized, and used as a tool to build community instead of tearing it down. Sports are such a bloated leviathan of greed that it has long suspended any pretense of moral or community accountability. None of the billionaires that oversee the sports world ever ask themselves any of these questions such as, are we doing harm? Are we doing harm by making games too expensive to watch and play? By selling products, especially sneakers, that are made under sweatshop conditions, are we doing a disservice to low-income families? Are our sports being used to sell more than games but advertise war through sponsorships with the military? There are so many people who love sports but hate what they have become. 
They want to enjoy the games but don't want to check their morality at the door. And so we're all affected by sports whether we play or not and whether we watch or not. We are affected economically, culturally, and socially. In a world where newscasters regularly describe what happens on Capitol Hill in terms of end zones and uh, home runs, we should all be questioning every aspect of this system. So the first way that American democratic socialism could make sports better for all is by making youth-level sports more fun. So let's start at the youngest age. At their best, youth sports can be a place of friendship, exercise, and healthy competition. But they're far from their best for the majority of young people in this country. Now let's set aside for the moment the millions who don't get to play organized sports due to having you know shuttered community centers, slashed physical education, or overall lack of community access. Let's focus on those who have the privilege and access to play. Let's stop and take a look at the American Youth Soccer Organization. They number 630,000 participants each year. Recent polling by the National Alliance for Youth Sports finds that roughly 70% of children in this country stop playing organized sports by the age of 13. Burdened by the expectations of frustrated adults, they simply say it's not fun anymore. And me being one of those because, you know, I was horrible, but, you know, I was the best third-string defensive tackle that my middle school ever witnessed. But, anyway, this first act of rebellion for many children is taking a stand and choosing not to play. The research shows that it is too much pressure due to overbearing parents, coaches, and messages that say unless they're, quote, good, they're wasting their time. This is just another example of our survival of the fittest culture instead of it being a place to let children grow. A rise of health problems for young people, young girls being pushed away from sports, and the rise of homophobia in sports are all just a small number of examples that are direct consequences of this kill-or-be-killed culture. Our children are playing for profit until they burn out, but it doesn't have to be that way. There should be a universal physical education, and there should be access for all, regardless of ability, status, or economic class. Sports, overall, sports should not just exist for the few. So, after the social Darwinist winnowing down of youth sports, even fewer choose to keep playing as adults. Less than 1% of high school athletes actually earn scholarships to play at the Division I college level. This is where we move into our second policy initiative, and that is giving power back to the players. At the college level, they come face-to-face with an organization that makes their youth sports experience look like an innocent walk in the park. Here, they have to face one of the most unjust institutions in sports, and that is the National Collegiate Athletic Association, better known as the NCAA. And where can I even start about what is wrong with the NCAA? It's best to start with its revenue-producing sports, men's basketball and football. These sports put billions of dollars in profit. They pull in billions of dollars of profit from cable television deals, but virtually all of that revenue goes to the NCAA executives. The top football and basketball coaches make millions of dollars a year. And in 39 out of the 50 states, the highest paid public employee is the football or basketball coach at the big state school. Yet players, 
who were disproportionately African American do not receive a dime. Or rather, they receive a mangled education where they don't have any choices in classes or schedule. While people complain about how college players get paid under the table, the real scandals is not that players get, are getting paid, but rather the fact that the NCAA en- enables universities and corporations to make millions from the unpaid labor of youth, uh, young athletes. For example, everybody loves cheering on black players on the tide at Alabama games, but they refuse to give a second thought to them as individuals once their helmets come off. Players are powerless, especially in football, because they have no minor league path to get to the NFL. The majority of players come from disproportionately poor backgrounds from the former Jim Crow South. The players not only risk injury to their bodies, but also their brains. Colleges are setting players up for devastating brain damage and ailments such as ALS, but they have no workers' comp or health care. In addition to what I just mentioned, 17 college players have died in off-season drills since 2000, most of that being from dehydration and heat exhaustion. This should be a national scandal, and I will guarantee to you that if it was in the NFL, there would have been congressional hearings by now. And yet, because it persists among a workforce that should be, quote, grateful for their scholarships, their voices remain muted. The best and most realistic solution in here, in the here and now, for, is for players to unionize so that they can have a collective voice about not only pay, but also workouts and health care. The football players at Northwestern attempted to do this and shook college football down to its foundations. Overall, it's time to, put, to treat college athletes like the employees that they are and allow them to enjoy the fruits of their labor instead of having them live and die at the whims of the NCAA cartel. So a third initiative for challenging the NCAA setup is part of a broader and necessary fight to make sure that sports are a racism-free zone. If sports and play are truly going to be for all, they can't, they can't also be a place where people are marginalized on the basis of race. That's why any movement for better sports should also stand against all Native American mascotry. It is archaic and needs to go. There's one particular case where all this kind of mascotry extends beyond all reasonable comprehension, and that's the Washington Redskins. For debate, for decades, Native American activists have fought to get the Native the Redskins to change their name. They pointed out that its name is demeaning, is a demeaning insult. They argue that its name is a dishonorable product of their original owner, George Preston Marshall, who was a staunch segregationist and who was also the last owner in the NFL to sign African-American players. So going back to my love of Tampa sports, I would love for someone to please explain to me why we can change the name of the Tampa Bay Devil Rays to the Rays because people were offended of the use of the word devil, but can't change the names of the Redskins. I mean, this is hypocrisy at its finest, people. Sports should also be a refuge for those who want to play, a place where oppression is challenged, not where it festers and spreads. It should be a place where sexism, toxic masculinity, and homophobia have no place. The pattern over the the panic over LGBTQ people being a part of who takes the field 
has also been a constant across sports. When Jason Collins came out in 2013 and played for the Brooklyn Nets, many believed that this would be a game-changer. Yet an avalanche of change has not taken place. Instead, we see more homophobia, more toxic masculinity, and more athletes forced to stay in the closet. No one should have to hide who they are. We should set the expectation that teams are forces to change how their communities interact, not to be battering rams of the worst that society has to offer. Athletes can be leaders in the struggle to reform sports and can join alongside a people's movement for fairer play. They can also be reflections of our own aspirations for what we want this world to be. But the starting point has to be that we can only truly pursue our athletic dreams if our basic needs are met. And that is a world that is worth fighting for. So speaking of something worth fighting for, our second topic today that we're going to cover is health care. Perhaps the most obvious human need the government should meet in a democratic socialist society is health care. Because health care is a human right, and its distribution cannot be left to the market. That is due to the fact that it privileges the, wel- the wealthy and leaves the lower class with inadequate services. It flies in the face of a just society because in a capitalist healthcare system, corporate executives provide only as much care as is profitable. Therefore, healthcare should be a basic human service provided by the government for free. Democratic socialists do not call for complete state control of the entire economy, but universal government-provided health care is fundamental. Health care is what makes the U.S. stand out the most from other industrialized nations. Denmark, Great Britain, Canada, and Japan all have a single system that guarantees medical services for every resident, regardless of age or income. By contrast, the U.S. has a litany of models for different classes of people centered on corporate rather than government providers. The U.S. is the only developed nation that relies on private, for-profit insurance system to fund and deliver medical care for its working-age population. Democratic socialists advocate for Medicare for All as the main strategy for protecting the human right to health care because it helps achieve better health equity. But America's long legacy of white supremacy makes universal health care inadequate to dismantle these racial barriers uh, that prevent equal access to health. Institutionalized racism creates the unequal living conditions that are structured into the distribution of health care and the unequal treatment of patients of color with insurance. Only when we have an anti-racist approach to a democratic socialist health policy are we going to be able to create the social conditions needed for health equity and the political conditions needed for radical change. The Democratic Socialist of America makes the struggle for universal health care a prominent part of its platform, and in fact, in 2017 it voted to make it a priority campaign. Medicare for All would establish a single public universal health insurance system that's managed by the federal government that also provides free comprehensive care on demand. Medicare for All stands apart from President Obama's Affordable Care Act because democratic socialists push for a radical departure from the capitalist approach 
by making health care a guaranteed public service. An American Democratic Socialist health insurance would create a single-payer health system, but it would not go as far as these Nordic models that are popular in Europe. So what are some of these benefits of publicly funded health care? So publicly funded and delivered health plans provide greater access to essential medical services than a market-based system. In this country, more than 20% of working-age people report that they avoid going to the doctor because they cannot afford the costs that go with it. And this is due to the fact that a capitalist system spikes up costs due to bureaucracy and CEO bonuses. Not having access to health care is a violation of human rights and social equality. The inability to pay health care bills bankrupts hundreds of thousands of Americans. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. Let's say you make it to the top. What's next? Relish in the glory of your accomplishments? Okay, sure, for a minute. But then you move forward. Take the 2021 Escalade. Cadillac's newest arrival is more than just a celebration of iconic luxury. It's the most technologically advanced Escalade ever. Because arriving is just the beginning. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Each year. No one should ever have to go bankrupt from getting health care healthcare treatments. In fact, more than 20,000 Amer- 20, Americans die each year in the prime years of their life due to medical conditions that could be treated, but all because they cannot afford to go to the doctor. An even more ridiculous fact is that the U.S. spends nearly two times more per capita on healthcare than the EU, but still falls far behind in life expectancy. According to the Journal of American Medical Association, in 2016, the U.S. spent 17.8% of the GDP on healthcare, and that's compared to other nations like Australia that only spent 9.6%. So why does the U.S. spend so much on healthcare, yet we have such poor health outcomes? The study found that the main drivers of U.S. spending are the higher administrative costs and the prices of pharmaceuticals. These high costs could be lowered in a single-payer system that was governed by patient care rather than for profit. Societies that guarantee access to health care and that generally distribute resources more equally are healthier for everybody. Indeed, by many measures, many in the U.S. or health care in the U.S. is actually getting worse. The for-profit system also leads to the dangerous overuse of technologies and drugs that put patients at higher risk of injury, side effects, and addiction. As a result, the U.S. has the highest rate of lethal drug overdoses among industrialized nations. In other words, the capitalist healthcare system not only only fails to provide medical services to millions of Americans, but it also harms their health. That is why the U.S. has the highest health care cost and the worst overall performance rating. One cannot explain health care disparities without looking at the underlying cause, and that is institutionalized racism. This can be summed up in three overarching ideas. First, institutionalized racism produces unequal health outcomes that cannot be corrected by access to health care alone. Second, racial bias negatively affects the health care of people of color that they receive even when they have access to uh, health insurance. Finally, 
the investment that white workers have in their racial identity poses a formidable barrier to the social change that's needed to achieve health equity in America. So, looking back at 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. launched a Poor People's Campaign, which was connected to the ongoing movement of the civil rights, and that was to call for a radical redistribution of power. Dr. King, sta- Dr. King stated that, quote, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhuman. By highlighting the injustice in health, Dr. King recognized the relationship between racial health disparities and economic inequalities that were at the heart of the civil rights movement. And in his claim, and his claim was definitely based in fact. For example, people of color in the U.S. experience greater rates of morbidity and mortality than white people. In one generation between 1940 and 1999, more than 4 million black Americans died prematurely relative to white. Race matters at the beginning of life, too. Black infants are more than two times as likely as white infants to die before their first birthday. Black women are four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy-related from pregnancy related causes. So overall, democratic socialists call for Medicare for All, and it's critical to a just society that recognizes health care as a human right. It would put the U.S. on par with every other industrialized country that guarantees access to medical services regardless of one's ability to pay. It would help eliminate the despicable gaps in health that link life and death to social status. But universal health insurance is woefully inadequate to correct the devastating impacts of institutionalized racism on the nation's health and other efforts to transform health policy. By crafting an anti-racist health agenda, democratic socialists will have a better chance of succeeding at their mission to build a more humane America. So, long swig before we get to our last section. And that's on education. So, like I just said, we're going to move into our last topic. And this one is especially near and dear to me. And that's defending and improving public education. Public education is the only social entitlement in American society that is available to all children. Education is also one of the few sectors here that is mandated by law to pursue some degree of equity and equal opportunity for children. And guess what? The U.S. public education system is one of the closest things we have to socialism. So hear me out. Public schools are the only social safety net program that provides children a meal, adult supervision, heat in the winter, and some measure of safety. All of these are components of socialism. And yes, Donald Trump just sprinted back to his bunker once again. But despite its incredible promise, America's public education remains deeply flawed and profoundly unequal. The services that public schools provide are more often than not inadequate to address the needs of our most vulnerable children. Too often our schools fail to achieve the basic purpose of education, and that's namely teaching academic skills in literacy and numeracy. Moreover, in most of the country, education is characterized by extreme inequities in learning conditions. So in every major city, and in many suburban and rural areas too, 
the public schools almost exclusively serve the poor. And presently, more than 20 million children in the public schools qualify for free lunch, and one out of five come from families below the, below the poverty line. Moreover, despite the historic Brown v. Board of Education decision to integrate schools, many remain deeply segregated on the basis of race and class. Now, I don't say this to knock the public education system itself, but I only want to show how vulnerable it is to criticism and attack. So many politicians, both Democrat and Republican, have done little more than blame schools and the people who work there for the problems that public schools face. In doing so, they avoid addressing the structural issues such as poverty and institutionalized racism that make it more likely that many public schools will continue to fail. So under both Democrat and Republican administrations, these policies that were intended to reduce race and class disparities in the academic outcomes have actually proven inadequate and harmful to the overall education. For some time, individual schools and districts have been left to themselves to devise strategies that are able to try and combat the effects of social and economic inequalities in education. The results of these efforts are unimpressive because the problems are formidable and because the policy strategies are just weak overall. To support and revitalize public education, progressives that are in charge of the school systems must must approach efforts uh, in order to reform and improve the education by challenging inequality and injustice head-on. And that doesn't mean simply defending public education as it is. You don't have to accept the inequities that come with it. Rather, progressives must offer a pragmatic vision for change. As an educator, it is irresponsible of me to simply offer these critiques without actual ideas for reforms. And so I'm going to list, uh, list off four of the many policy changes that make up the education plank of the American Democratic Socialist platform. And so the first policy uh, change, it involves something called capacity building. So numerous Democrat and Republican leaders have responded to failing schools by either shutting them down or taking them over. This removes any autonomy of democratic local governance without any clear evidence of improvement afterwards. These takeover tactics include mass firings of, quote, bad teachers, and shutting down numerous schools altogether. For example, during the first 12 years that former New York City mayor and, you know, world's richest house elf Michael Bloomberg was in office, he shut down 161 schools. Almost all of these schools served low-income black and Latinx students. So the alternative to this is capacity building. This involves state or district officials assessing the factors that cause the school's trouble and then working with school staff to meet the actual needs of the students. So let me reiterate this. They actually listen to the teachers who are in the classroom to come up with the best ways to serve the students. I know that's a crazy concept. So this includes training and providing critical resources such as social workers, counselors, and after-school programs that are able to meet the needs of the students. And this strategy has been implemented in urban school districts in Toronto, Canada, and has been met with tremendous amounts of success. So that was the first policy initiative. 
The second one that I'm going to mention involves focusing on the whole child. And that means acknowledgement that a child's physical health, emotional well-being, and social stability can play an impact in their overall academic performance. And this isn't some crazy new idea. Lyndon Johnson's Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965 was created with the aim of alleviating and compensating for the effects of poverty. But unfortunately, this focus on the whole child was lost thanks to George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind. Instead, the narrative became that it was nothing more than an attempt to make excuses for the effects of poverty. Because, you know, a student totally has any fucking say-so over whether or not they were born poor or not. But anyway, the way to adopt a more holistic approach to educating children, it's been started and embraced in several states. Many community schools are now equipped with clinics, food pantries, clothing, and job and housing services for parents. While there will be some who argue that this approach has a high cost, I argue that the cost of ignoring the basic needs of children are even higher. A third policy initiative, it deals with equitable funding for all school districts. Across the entire U.S., there are more than 13,000 local school districts. And these districts vary considerably in terms of wealth, income, and a tax base, which hinders their ability to pay for the decent schools. And so a report by EdBuild found that there is a gap of $23 billion, with a B, dollars, in funding between predominantly white schools and the districts that serve students of color. According to the report, the average non-white school district receives $2,226 less than white school districts per student enrolled. And to add insult to injury, even as the government has worked to figure um, how to close that gap, they refuse to see the wide gap in resources that are available to students. And so each year, Americans spend roughly $650 billion on K-12 education. Traditionally, the majority of funds have been generated from local property taxes. And given the high degree of race and class segregation throughout the U.S., this has ensured that inequality and per-pupil spending is the norm. Overall, 40% of all school funding comes from the states, and 40% comes from the local school districts. But states vary dramatically in how they spend on education. So in how they allot that money. So for example... New York spent $20,744 per student, but Utah spent $6,751 per student, even though Utah had a tremendously lower uh, population overall. So according to the Census Bureau, in good old Alabama, we spend $9,236 per student, which is good for 39th out of, the, out of 50 states. Furthermore, there is even more variation in how funds are allocated to school districts within a state. Some states are more generous with their funding for districts that have a higher proportion of lower-income students, but many states ensure that schools serving the poorest children receive less money. And I mean, let's be honest, money matters. It determines a teacher's salary, the quality of facilities, and the resources that are available to students. Under an American democratic socialistic uh, type government, 
the federal government, who currently only provides 10% of K-12 funding, would make equity in funding a priority. This could be done by increasing the federal government's contribution to schools that are in high-poverty areas and requiring that states adopt more equitable funding policies. An equitable educational system would allocate funds based on need. The state and local school boards would still keep the ability to design the curriculum and set state standards as long as they were able to meet the basic national thresholds. And this is how the majority of European nations have their school systems organized today. And it's no coincidence that their students outperform the American students across the board. And so the fourth and final policy initiative that I will discuss is mutual accountability. Under our current system, the general pattern has been that those with the most power have the least accountability. Governors, state legislatures, mayors, and superintendents are generally much less likely to be held accountable for school performance. Instead, the blame falls on teachers, students, and principals. Here's a great example about a lack of accountability, once again from the great state of Alabama. We currently rank 50 out of 50. That's right, dead fucking last in education nationwide. We can't even use the joke, thank God for Mississippi anymore. Despite this abysmal and frankly embarrassing rating, Governor Meemaw Ivey still maintains an approval rating of 59%, which is good for 10th in the nation. So just like me, you may be wondering how the hell that this is possible given that our governor goes to bed before the sun even sets. Well, it's because there is no sense of mutual accountability. Just like we're seeing the president do, the governor is able to pass the buck onto teachers and students for, quote, failing, instead of those who actually control the funding of the entire state. It's a lot easier to blame faceless students and teachers instead of admitting the fact that you would prefer to let a student's or a school's zip code determine the quality education that it can provide. So, as you can see, this is our last episode on American Democratic Socialism. And at the very beginning of this series, in part one, we described, we started out by describing how President Trump says that we will never be a socialist country. Well, just like every other dipshit rambling of somebody that's been sipping on too much Lysol, I hope that you've gathered that this statement is blatantly wrong. Different ideals of socialism are as American as the Statue of Liberty and the Fourth of July. But unlike the fear-mongering tactics that are often used, an American democratic socialist, socialistic state would be for the benefit of all of our nation's people, not just a select few. Over the course of this series, we've discussed how our history is intertwined with the, developmental, uh, the development of socialism. From the Progressive Era, to FDR's New Deal, to the Great Society of the Civil Rights Era, the nation we see today has been shaped by socialistic ideals. Each time that our nation made strides towards equity, it was in due in part to the grassroots movements of the people. More so than any other time, that uprising of the people is needed to help our country begin to right the wrongs of our past. And so I'm going to leave you with a story of an event that happened this past weekend that truly gave me hope for that upwelling of collective action among the people. So in response to the murder of George Floyd in broad daylight that occurred last week on Memorial Day, 
protests have erupted across the country and the world. Now, without going down the rabbit hole over protesting versus looting, I want to mention a moment that I witnessed that I, de- I define as a moment in history. And that's where a mobilized movement of people demanded action and it resulted in real change. So Birmingham stands as one of the epicenters for the civil rights movement. From the Children's March to the 16th Street church bombing to water hoses and dog attacking protesters, Birmingham and the civil rights movement will always be intertwined. Well, among the statues across the city depicting different moments in Alabama history, one stands as a testament to the lasting oppression that continued well past the Civil War. Okay, so we're going to do some math real quick. Birmingham, which recently celebrated its 149th birthday, was founded in 1871. The Civil War ended in 1865. So a full Six years before Birmingham even existed, the Civil War ended. So let's start off by wondering why on earth did Birmingham have to have a Confederate monument? According to Beham Wiki, on April 26, 1894, the cornerstone for a future monument was laid in Lynn Park during the 1894 reunion of Confederate veterans in Birmingham. Anyway, inside the cornerstone was a sealed box with a Bible a Confederate flag, a bronze medal honoring the Confederate Declaration of Independence, and many other items. And so for several years, this base remained empty. It was just a cornerstone. But then in 1900, so what, 35 years after the Civil War ended, the Birmingham chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy began to raise funds to go towards a Confederate monument in the park. On April 26, 1905, the nearly 30-foot obelisk was unveiled with a crowd of over 1,000 making their way from the Jefferson County Courthouse to the park. And so let's fast forward now to uh, 2015. Birmingham began seriously considering removing the monument after the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. You know... The one where a white male shot and killed nine people simply because they were black, but he was, you know, peacefully arrested. So anyway, uh, back in Birmingham, local activists argued that the monument had nothing to do with Birmingham, so it needed to be removed. However, in May of 2016, Governor K. Meemaw Ivey struck again and signed the law named uh, the Alabama Memorial Preservation Act. And this would, quote, prohibit the relocation, removal, alteration, renaming, or other disturbance of certain commemorative statues without permission from the state legislature, end quote. So essentially, she said in those few moments while she was actually awake, you can't remove symbols of racial oppression without the consent of a state legislature, even though that state legislature still celebrates Robert E. Lee's birthday each year, so you kind of know where they stand. So let's fast forward to last Sunday, May 31st, 2020. On Sunday night, a crowd gathered in Lynn Park protesting the murder of George Floyd, and they attempted to topple the monument. In response, Mayor Randall Woodfin asked the protesters to give him 24 hours to find a legal means of removing the statue. However, the protesters continued to work at toppling the statue. And you know, although they tried to pull it down with a truck, it still stayed. Instead, 
the protesters toppled a statue of Charles Lynn, who was a Birmingham founder who served as a blockade runner in the Confederacy and who, was, uh, who the park is actually named after. True to his word, though, Mayor Woodfin brought in a crane to dismantle the monument on the night of June 1st, one day later, just like he planned, just like he promised. And ironically, and as a fitting fuck you, Alabama's state holiday honoring Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, also fell on June 1st that year. Now that Birmingham removed the monument, the city is in violation of the Alabama Memorial Preservation Act, and they face a $25,000 fine. However, Birmingham citizens started a GoFundMe campaign to pay the bill, and as of June 2nd, that campaign has raised over $57,000, which is more than double the amount of the fine. So as you can see, when people work together in a unified manner, we can demand action and bring about real meaningful change. Among all the chaos and the narrative skewing that is sure to happen within the next few weeks and months, I want to say that for a period of two days, I was truly so proud of the direct action taken by the people of Birmingham against a symbol of racism and hate that has lasted well over a hundred years. And as the late, great Howard Zinn said, just like movements, you can never be neutral on a moving train. So, I wanted to say just how thankful I am for your support. And if you enjoyed this series on democratic socialism and want to let me know how I, do, how I did, make sure to click that like button below and that fancy red subscri uh, subscribe channel to subscribe to my channel in the mood for real history. And so, you can also now find me on Apple Podcast and Spotify. I always appreciate any comments or feedback. And so, you can also be sure to check out any of my previous episodes by clicking that cool end screen that's probably right beside me right now. And next week, we will start a new series on the caning of Charles Sumner and explain how that helped start the path to the Civil War. So until next week, this is Caleb Mood reminding you that the most revolutionary act that one can ever engage in is to simply tell the truth. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. Come stay and play at Live Casino and Hotel. Welcome to one of the biggest casinos in the country with luxurious clean rooms, upscale dining, and the grandest payouts. Now offering stay and play and all in packages, including $50 free slot play, VIP parking, VIP casino access, and more. Book now at livecasino.com or call 443-445-2929 at Arundel Mills. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgambling.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end, it's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.